0: Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. I, I just want to throw out this disclaimer again. The themes and the passages that we're going to study are rather mature. Let's just say this is not a uh, bedtime story that you would read to your, to your kids. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have communicated your will to us in your word. Thank you that the scriptures have the message that we need in order to have faith in the Lord Jesus and to be saved. Thank you that your word is inspired by you that through human authors, you communicated what you wanted to communicate regarding yourself, regarding your son, regarding salvation, Lord. And we pray that as we look into your word right now, you you would guide us and you would speak to us that your spirit, the one that inspired all of the biblical authors, that your spirit would would be the one teaching us, Lord, that this would not be... Uh, just my mere words, Lord, but that it would be um, your spirit teaching to all of us. Lord, I pray that we would have an attitude of uh, humility, that we would submit ourselves to you and to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last Sunday, we left off with the open question of uh, who can fight against the beast right we're, we're uh we were looking at the book of revelation and um in revelation 13 we see a description of the beast and the question is or the question that the worshipers of the beast ask is who is like the beast who can fight against it and uh we intentionally left off with that question uh so that we would prepare our hearts to uh, prepare our hearts for advent and that means preparing our hearts to celebrate the Lord Jesus' first advent, that is his first coming, and also to set our hopes and set our expectations and, and be prepared for the Lord Jesus' second advent or his second coming. And so, uh, 34 days from now, we will be celebrating the, the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ um, And we will be celebrating the birth of him who will fight against the beast and conquer it. We will be celebrating the birth of the one who was born, who was sent from God and conquered Satan, conquered the serpent. We will be celebrating the birth of Jesus, the one who, as it says in Revelation, the the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and the one who is also described as a lamb who was slain. So we will be celebrating that in uh, 34 days. And so we decided that in order to prepare our hearts to celebrate that for our Advent season, we wanted to focus on... uh, Certain individuals in the genealogy of Jesus, in the family tree of Jesus. And we are focusing on the five women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, uh, even though it is um, not very common for genealogies in this time or even in in older, older times to include women... It is not necessarily unheard of. There are a few other genealogies in Scripture that include women, but it's definitely not the norm. And Matthew does something really interesting by including these five women that um, have multiple things in common, especially four of them, have a lot of things in common. And as we look into this, uh, uh, as we go through this series, we are going to find several things that these women have in common. So let's, let me read from Matthew Uh, Chapter 1, I'm going to read the genealogy of Jesus. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. And Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Abud. And Abud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Mathan. And Mathan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, fourteen generations. So it is. Uh, e- even though it would be worthwhile going and looking at the stories of each one of these characters, each one of these people in the genealogy of Jesus, we decided to go and look at the stories of these uh, five women, and that is uh, Tamar, Rahab, uh, Bathsheba, sorry Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And so today we're going to start with the story of Tamar and this story is found in the book of Genesis chapter 38 so I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 38 And before we read it remember in Revelation 12 remember the the one of the visions that John sees is that there's a woman and the woman is about to give birth, and the dragon is waiting for the woman to give birth so that he can devour the child. And if you remember, when we studied the book of, the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 12, uh, we saw that, this is the, that the dragon is Satan, and he is trying to eat the child of the promise. He is trying to destroy the Lord Jesus. He is trying to destroy the seed of the woman. But don't don't think that Satan began his plan of trying to destroy God's plan when Mary got pregnant with Jesus. No. He started way, way before that. From remember in in Genesis 3:15, remember the the curse and the the promise that God makes to to curse for for Satan and a promise for, for humanity. He says, I will put enmity. Between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so, the, in this promise, in this prophecy, God is uh, uh, foretelling of the seed of a woman, of, of one who will come and will crush the head of the serpent. And he is obviously talking about the Messiah, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Satan, from that moment on, when that promise was made that someone would come and crush his head, he began, well, he had already begun, but he wanted to thwart, to thwart God's plan. And he wanted to destroy the seed of the woman. And so, I think that in Revelation 12, it's not only talking about Mary, right? I don't think that the woman is just Mary, but I think that the woman is the people of God throughout the ages. And Satan has been trying to destroy the seed of the woman because he knows that out, of that out of this seed, one will come or one would come because he already came and would destroy him, would crush his head. And so here in Genesis 38, we have a prime example of Satan trying to destroy the seed of the woman. We have a, tr- a prime example of how sat- uh, of sat- the satanic influence over some of the characters in this story in trying to, to thwart God's plan of bringing salvation through the seed of the woman. So let's read Genesis 38. We're going to read the whole thing, and then, and then we're going to go back and, and comment a little bit on it. Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house, till Shelah, my my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was com- comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered himself herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she, wa- for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me? that you may come into me. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Then Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand. He did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cold prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cold prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cold prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being brought out. Oh, sorry, and as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Zerah. This is the word of God. What a story we have here. What this this uh, story, the placement of it is very interesting, and I believe it, it is very telling. So in the, book of, in the book of Genesis, we have the story of the patriarchs. We have the story of Abraham. We have the story of Isaac. We have the story of Jacob. And eventually we have, uh, the, the, the rest of the book focuses on the story of Joseph, son of Jacob, even though the seed of the woman did not, the, the, the genea- Joseph, Joseph is not included in the genealogy of Jesus. Joseph is, is not one of Jesus' ancestors, right? It is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah, right? But um, this story, the placement of it is, right after Joseph has been sold into slavery to Egypt. And it is placed right before Joseph is tempted by Potiphar's wife and he refuses to, to sleep with her and he is thrown into jail. So the story is smack right in, right in the middle of Joseph's story. And to be honest with you, I did not remember that it was right there. right? Because when we think of the story of Joseph, we always think of the whole story of the story as a whole, and we don't really take time to pause and say, "Well, what about the story of of Tamar?" Um, and I think that this was intentional. I, I I mean, on on the one hand, I think it made sense to put it there chronologically, but as some of you have noticed, the the biblical authors have no problem putting a few things out of chronological order. But in this case, Moses, who is the uh, the author of Genesis, he puts this story right here. And I believe that this serves an important purpose. I believe that this is uh, highly intentional. So think about this. God made this promise to Adam and Eve, right? That, that uh, out of her seed, out of her uh, offspring, someone would come and crush the head of the serpent. And then he reaffirms that promise, that promise to Abraham right he says it is through your seed through your offspring that all the families of the earth will be blessed and then he affirms that promise to Isaac Jacob by the w- uh, sorry uh, Abraham by the way is righteous in the sense that he doesn't want to marry off Isaac to a Canaanite woman and so he goes and finds Rebekah so that she would find so sorry so that she would marry him and then he re- he affirms that promise to to Isaac He affirms that promise to Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and the three older sons pretty much disqualify themselves from from being the the rightful heir. We know that uh, Simeon and Levi, when their sister Dinah is defiled, they go and basically trick uh, the people, uh, the, the family of Shechem. They tell them, yes, we will accept you as our family, but you have to get circumcised. And when they get circumcised, and as they are still recovering, uh, Simeon and Levi go and kill all of the men. So Jacob basically basically tells him, you guys have made me a stink to these people. And so that kind of disqualifies them. And then later on, we learn that Reuben, his oldest, actually ends up sleeping with Jacob's concubine, which also kind of—well, not kind of, which also— disqualifies him right from being from being from the seed continuing through him now the thing with judah though technically that would disqualify him as well right i mean just this story that we're reading about judah judah was not this great guy we see the things that he did but as we're gonna see it it seems like eventually he repents eventually he comes around um However, Judah, when the brothers of Joseph are planning to kill Joseph, remember that Judah is the one that says, let's not kill him. Let's not, you know, put his blood upon us. Let us sell him to this caravan and, and you know, that way his blood will, will not be upon us. So, you know, in a sense, he saves uh, his brother Joseph's life, although it was still not righteous of him to sell his brother. And then... They take a goat, notice the the similarities between the two stories, they take a goat and they dip Joseph's robe of many colors in it, and they bring it to his father and they ask him to identify it. Same exact words that eventually Tamar will say uh, to, to, to Judah, identify this. So Judah went to his father and said, identify this robe, and Jacob identifies the robe and says, this is my son, my son, Joseph's robe. And he, he cries and he cannot be consoled. So we are left up with Joseph going into Egypt. And then we start with this, uh, we are, or the story is interrupted by the story of Judah. And we learn that Judah goes away from his brothers. He goes away from his family. He goes away from the people of God, right? The, the people of God are, abraham and his family but he decides to leave the blessing and the protection of god's family it's very similar to to lot who decides to leave abraham and to go on his own and he leaves the protection of being with god's people so he leaves his brother he becomes friends with a with a canaanite and eventually finds a canaanite woman and he he marries her they had three children, and we don't know anything about the first one other than he was wicked enough to be the first individual in Scripture to be singled out by God and put to death. So God had already killed some people, right, in the, in, during the flood. He, he kills basically most of humanity in, uh, in, in the episode of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sends judgment upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he kills them. But uh, Judah's firstborn heir, or Er, or I don't know exactly how to say his name, he is wicked enough that God singles him out, and he puts him to death. That's all we know about him. He married Tamar, and God, uh, uh, because he was, because he was wicked, God put him to death. Now, about Onan, we know, we definitely know more. And one of the main things that we know is that he is also very wicked. And he is, also, he is the second individual in the Bible to be killed by God. Now, before we dive into the details, I, I do think that there is a good lesson for us here. Um, we might wonder, okay, you know, Er and Onan they were not that far removed from Abraham, right? I mean, Abraham is their, their their grandpa, basically. So how is it that they turned out so wicked? I mean, how is it that from Abraham to, you know, a few generations down, how is it that they were so wicked? And when we think about the decisions that Judah made, when we think about the circumstances of uh Of their living situation, we learned that Judah was just not making the right decisions. First off, he left the protection of God's family. Secondly, he married a Canaanite woman. They were not supposed to marry Canaanite women. He was supposed to you know remain with the people of God, and then he chose an arguably a canaanite woman for for his son. We don't know for sure if Tamar was Canaanite or not, but it, it all the evidence seems to point that direction. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us that after all the decisions that Judah made to abandon God's people and to bring his family to, uh, to cohabit with the, with the Canaanites, it shouldn't surprise us that his two kids turn out this way. And I think this is a really good lesson for, lesson for us as parents. If we are sending our kids to the Canaanite schools, and if we are letting our kids watch the Canaanite shows on Netflix, and if we ourselves are so involved in the Canaanite culture, and if we ourselves leave the protection of God's people, the church, then it shouldn't surprise us at all if our children turn out to behave just like the Canaanites. It shouldn't surprise us at all if our children do not fear the Lord. And so I think this is a, a good lesson for us as parents. And now moving on to the, to the story here. What was, what was the deal with uh, Onan and Tamar? So Tamar's first husband, er, heir, had, he had been killed. And Judah asks Onan, his second, his second son, He says in verse 8, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for her brother. So even though this had not been instituted as a law quite yet, quite formally, eventually we see it instituted as a law in the book of Deuteronomy, the leveret marriage was a very common practice. And basically it was a provision for someone who died to not be left out without an offspring, right? So remember, in, it, the book of Genesis begins with God commanding people to be fruitful and multiply, right? So having an offspring is really a big deal. It's obedience to a commandment, to a direct commandment of God. In fact, it's obedience to God's first commandment, to be fruitful and multiply. And so it was a really big deal for someone to die without having an offspring without having children. And so the Leveret marriage was a provision so that this person would not be left without an inheritance. And this meant that the the brother who, who lived, you know, with the family, he would take his, his deceased brother's wife as his own. And the first child that they had together, it would be his brother's child. It would be counted as his brother's child. He would receive his brother's inheritance. And it was not only that, but it was also a provision for the widow to not be left by herself, to not be left uh, uh, alone, without, without her husband, without an heir, without, uh, uh, without the inheritance that probably that, that came from that. So actually, if, if you look at, or, or I'll read to you, Deuteronomy 25, Five through 10. This is a commandment that God gives the people of Israel. This is this leveret marriage law. It is a lot more developed, but this is the law in Deuteronomy 25 that God gives to the people of Israel. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother for her to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and put, and pull his, his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she, she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. So this is a a very interesting law. And like I said, I believe that one of the purposes of this law is to protect the woman from being left without an heir, from being left without an an inheritance. Uh, In fact, we could argue that this was a very countercultural law in a culture that did not value women at all, In this culture, even though it is is extremely weird for us to think about a brother taking his brother's wife, but in this particular culture, in this situation of a fallen world, this is actually a gracious provision of God for the protection of the woman and for the preserving of the name of the deceased person. Now, I'm not exactly sure if the brother was obligated to take his brother's wife but I mean that the the dishonor that the brother would face for not performing his duty as a brother-in-law or uh, yes a brother-in-law was it was very disgraceful right it was very disgraceful to be spat on your face and basically that was your reputation from now on as the one who had his sandal pulled off and so The problem, going back to our story, the problem with Onan, Onan had multiple problems. One of the problems is that he is selfish. He doesn't care about his brother. He doesn't care about Tamar. He doesn't care about preserving the name of his brother. Now, had had that been his only problem, he could have just said, you know what? I do not want to perform the duty. I, you know, I prefer to be shamed. And that's the end of the story. But the problem with Onan is that he was also deceitful, right? Because he actually took Tamar and he slept with her multiple times. But every time that he would sleep with her, he would pull out and not give her a, the, uh, give her an, uh, uh, an heir. Because he knew that the first child that would be born would be his brothers, technically. It would not be his. And so he was selfish, and then he was deceitful. He, he was making it seem like he actually took Tamar, but he was just using her for his own satisfaction. He was just using her to fulfill his own lustful desires. And then on top of that, he is not fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply. So, Onan's disobedience here, onan's sin here, not that we have you know degrees of of sin, sin is sin and and God hates all sin. but onan's sin here was of diabolical uh, magnitude. like it was not just this you know individual isolated issue, but Onan was actually acting as as an agent of Satan in trying to destroy the seed of the woman. He was not preserving the seed of the woman. He was not fulfilling the command to be fruitful and multiply. So I believe, I truly believe that this was a satanic attempt to stop the seed of the woman in its tracks. And this is why this is a really big deal. I mean, it is already a big deal alone, what he was doing, but it is an even greater deal in light of the commandment that God had given them, in light of the greater story. And so God rightfully takes his life. Now, Judah, he had his own fault as well. When he saw, okay, my first son died, the one who married Tamar. Now, my second son died. Well, he's probably thinking, wow, this Tamar is a, a, a black widow, right? She's just She's, she's accursed. So if I give her my next son, my, my third and, and only left child, what if he also dies and I am left without an offspring? And so he deceives her and he sends her back to her father's house. Now, this is also a big deal because technically she was already a part of the family. So he should have kept her and he should have provided for her and she should have stayed with, with Uh, Judah's house with the people of Israel but instead he added disgrace upon disgrace sorrow upon sorrow and sent her back to her father's house and he made her believe that he was going to give her his third child whenever he grew up and became older but obviously he had no plans to do that it says for he feared that he would die like his brothers so he was deceiving Tamar So eventually, Judah's wife dies. He has a, a time of uh, a time of, of sorrow, and eventually, he is uh, comforted. And so, in a you know completely uh, new scenario, he goes up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, and he goes to shear his sheep. Now, back in 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 those times. Everyone knew that whenever you went up to shear your sheep, that was a time for partying. That was a time for celebration. It was a time to get loose, to get drunk, to just, you know, do as your heart desired. Of course, this was not something that God had commanded them. It was just something that it, it was a custom back in the day. And so Tamar decides or, or Tamar comes up with a with a plan. Now let's think about Tamar for a moment. We don't know we don't know where Tamar is from. Most likely she is a Canaanite woman. most likely given given the the, the wickedness of her two husbands, most likely she doesn't know anything about the Lord. I don't think that heir and uh, onan we're very good about telling her about the Lord. It seems like they didn't care about God. I don't think that Judah did a good job about telling her about the Lord. So it seems like Tamar is just this Canaanite woman and she she probably doesn't know about the Lord. Maybe she does. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But she is being abused. She is a victim. Right? First, she is abused by Earth's wickedness, then she's abused by Onan's wickedness, then she is deceived by Judah. She is definitely the outcast in this, in this story. She is definitely the one that is receiving the short end of the stick. And so she deceives she, she uh, sorry, she comes up with this plan because if you think about it, where else could she go? Could she appeal to a court? Could she appeal to someone or something else? I mean, of course, she could have appealed to God. But again, we don't even know if she is a, if she is a God-fearing woman. And so she dresses herself as a prostitute. She takes off her widow, the, the clothes that identified her as a, prost, as, sorry, as, a, as a widow, and covers her face so that no one can recognize her. And she goes to the place where, uh, where they the the sheep shearers go, and so when Judah finds her, he uh, solicits her. We are not explained why. We don't know why. He just saw her and he thought that she was a prostitute, and he he asked for her services. And so, you know, the rest of the story happened. You know exactly what happened. But she he offers her a goat, which is interesting if you think about it, because it's the same animal that was killed in place of Joseph, right, in this story, and so he offers her a goat, but he doesn't have the goat with him, and so she asks for a pledge, and so as a pledge, she asks for his signet, for his, uh, for his staff, where are we, uh, verse 18, she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff. That is in your hand. So he gives her that. And then he moves on. He goes to his house. She goes to her father's house. She you know, dresses again as a, as a widow. And Judah sends his friend to bring the goat to her. So that he could get his signet and his cord and his staff back. But when, he go, when his friend goes back, no one has heard of her. There is no... There is no cold prostitute in this in that place. And so Judah is, of course, worried about his reputation. He's worried about his honor, even though to us, to the reader, he's lost his honor a long time ago. But he is worried about his honor. And so just imagine how foolish he and his friend would look going around and asking, hey, have you seen this prostitute that that actually ripped us off. He, she she uh, kept my signet and my, and my cord and my staff. So they decided to, you know, just let the matter stay there. He says, hey, after all, I, you know, I, it was all my intention to give the goat. Then a few months later, when, when uh, Tamar starts to show, Judah is told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now, this is this to me is, is one of the most shocking parts of this story. Look at Judah's response. He says, Bring her out and let her be burnt. This is a very, very clear example of self-righteousness. This is a very clear example of hypocrisy. First off, he is so concerned with his reputation that, you know, just let the, let the matter die out with the, with the prostitute. Uh, let's forget about it. He is also so concerned with his reputation and the reputation of his family that even though Tamar is no longer living with them, with his family, he still wants to burn her so as to preserve the reputation of his family. I think it is disgusting to see his attitude, especially in light of his own sin, right? He wants to burn her for her immorality when he just committed a gross act of immorality himself. And I think there's another lesson for us here. I think that often it is those people that are so, that are, uh, <laughs> that are, that are uh, fake in their religious, re, religion, religiosity, I don't know, the word is escaping me, but it is, the, it is the people who are so religious and so self-righteous that sometimes are the first ones to point out sin in others. It is the people that are so concerned with their own reputation, and yet they are hypocritical, that are the first ones to be extremely angry at the sin of others when they fail to see their own sin. And this is, this is the story of, of the Pharisees and the Gospels, right? They are the first ones to point out the sins of others. When, when, when Mary, the, the, the prostitute, comes and washes Jesus' feet, what do the Pharisees think? If he was a prophet, he would know that she is an unclean woman. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, right? He he turns it on them, and, and he's. I I can't remember exactly what uh, his response, but I think he's like, "She has been forgiven much." So Tamar, in uh, uh you know, place her 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 cards and says, "Actually, by the man who's." Signet and and uh, cord and staff. These are. This is by the man that I am pregnant, and so. In the exact same wording that Judah asks his father Jacob to identify Joseph's robe, she tells him, "Come identify these things," and so he identifies them, and they are his. And I believe that this is where he turns around, because he says. She is more righteous than I. Now, think about it. For an an Israelite man to say that of a Canaanite woman, this is a big deal. It is a big deal for him to acknowledge that she is more righteous than he is. And he acknowledges because I did not want to give her my son, Shalah. So, eventually, she gives birth to twins, and one of them who is actually the, his brother was going to come out first, Zerah, but uh, Perez ends up coming out first, and he ends up being the one to preserve the lion, to preserve the seed of the woman. But what do we make of Tamar? What do we make of this story? I mean, I, I think that, that our immediate response to anything in the Bible is, well, what is the moral value of this? right? Is she right or is she wrong? Is she, is she righteous or is she sinful? I mean, she, she slept with her father-in-law after all, right? What she did, she, it was an act of immorality. And so I think that that our tendency is to want to figure out, well, was she right or, or was she wrong? Is the Bible condemning her or is the Bible condoning her? Well, the Bible is a difficult book and the Bible does not give us an answer to this. At least not, not a clear, straight up, and Tamar was, you know, sinful, or and Tamar was, was a righteous woman. I mean, Jacob, uh, sorry, Judah does say that, and the, the, the biblical authors are intentional about the things that they include. And so, even though I don't think that the Bible is saying, whenever you have a problem like this, this is how you should resolve your situation, I do think that the Bible is, making a comparison here and it's showing how judah the patriarch the one that should have known better the one whose grandfather was abraham he should have known better he was from the chosen people of israel and then in contrast this this woman who was uh you know by all accounts uh uh uh, or or sorry for all we know she was she was a pagan Canaanite woman, someone that should have not known, she does the right, well, not the right thing, but she she does the right thing in preserving the seed of the woman. Now, we don't know if she acted in faith, right? There are other, other stories in which we are told that the person acted in faith. In this particular story, we don't know. We don't know if she knew about God and maybe She knew about the promise, and she acted in faith in saying, I'm going to get my children one way or the other. We don't know. What we do know is that Judah acknowledges that she is more righteous than him. What we do know is that her sin, in comparison with Judah's sin, is a little drop in the bucket. We also know that David king david names one of his daughters tamar we also know that uh, in a couple other places in the bible and the book of ruth is one of them tamar is included in a blessing right so when Boaz marries ruth and 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 the elders bless him they tell him you know may may your wife be as fruitful as uh, i can remember who they name and they'd say they say Uh, They name Paris and they name who was born of Tamar. So that's really all we know about her. And then we know that Matthew names her in the New Testament, in the genealogy of Jesus. But I don't think that we, I I don't think that what the author is trying to show us here is whether she was right or wrong. I think that the concern of the author is greater than that. Going back to the context of the story, in in that entire section of the story of Joseph, we cannot really say that Tamar is the heroine of the story. We can certainly not say that Judah is the the hero of the story. In that story, there is only one man that remains sinless throughout throughout the whole story. And this is Joseph, right? Not, not that Joseph himself was sinless. Of course, you know, he was a man. He, he was uh, fallen with a sinful, sorry, he was born with a sinful nature. But in this story, he is portrayed as the only one who is righteous. Whereas Judah, his brother, as soon as he saw the prostitute went with her, Joseph, on the other hand, whenever Potiphar's wife wanted to go and sleep with him, he he rejected that, and he ran away because he did not want to sin against his God. Also, in the greater story, I believe that Satan was also trying to mess with God's plan by killing the people of Israel, by starving them to death. And so we know that Joseph was was sent to Egypt. Yes, he was sent by his brother, by his brothers. But in God's sovereign plan, God allowed for Joseph to go into Egypt so that at the right time, when the famine would come, they would be delivered by the hand of Joseph. And so in this sense, Joseph is a type of Christ. Whenever we look at this story and we look at Joseph, Joseph should make us think of Christ, should make us think of Jesus. Because if you think about it, it is the same story. All of these people, all of, the, all of the seed of the woman, all of the descendants of the woman are sinful, fallen people in need of a savior. All of these people in the genealogy of Jesus are fallen, sinful people in need of a savior. And they all need a Joseph to go out and deliver them, to go out and rescue them from certain death. And so in this in this, uh, in this manner, this story is actually pointing us to the ultimate Joseph, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who was uh, unjustly accused, who was beaten, who was put in, into jail, who was killed for our sin, who was sent by God to save us from our sin, to rescue us from our sin. And so this story, again, going back to this story, in the story of Tamar and Judah, we have no no heroes heroes per se. And yet this story communicates that the family of Jesus, the great-grandparents of Jesus, and the great-grandmothers of Jesus, they were all sinful people in need of a Savior. And so are we. We might be disgusted at the sin of Judah. And we might be disgusted at the sin of Onan. We might be disgusted at the injustices that were done to Tamar. And this speaks about how much these people need salvation. But we should also be disgusted at our own sin. We should also be disgusted at our own immorality, at our own selfishness. At the, own, at, at the injustices that we ourselves have caused. And we should all be reminded, we need a savior. We need the one who came from the seed of the woman to come and save us from our sinfulness. We needed his death on the cross so that we could be redeemed from our own sin. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for humbling yourself, for becoming a servant, for dying on the cross to save us. Lord, we are Repulsed by the sin in this story. And yet, if we are honest, our heart is sinful. Our thoughts are sinful. We are in as much need of a savior as Judah was. We are in as much need of someone to come and rescue us as Tamar was. And we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to rescue us from our sin. And Lord, as we prepare to celebrate his first coming, his birth from Mary, may we have this expectant attitude of, Seeing the sin of this world, to, uh, seeing the, the sin within our own hearts, and longing for the day that your Son Jesus will return and finally destroy all sin and cast the dragon, the beast, the second beast, into the lake of fire, never to come out again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take some time to remember.